Welcome to episode 92. Today, Dr. Diane Sterafenner and Dr. Sydney Snyder talk about their book called Culturally Responsive Teaching for MLs. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful Culturally responsive instruction has been receiving a lot of attention lately, especially in the light of the pandemic and the continued social justice movements. However, what does culturally responsive instruction look like for teachers of multilinguals? In this podcast, we talked to Diane and Sydney about the inspiration for this book, what culturally responsive instruction is and what it's not, and share with you the five principles of culturally responsive instruction. Now, on to today's podcast. If you are part of the Twitter community, then you know of Dr. Diane Sterfenner, and you also know Sydney, Dr. Sydney Snyder. These two leaders have been consistently giving to us for decades. You probably know them because of their highly acclaimed book, Unlocking English Learners' Potential, Strategies for Making Content Accessible. Now, I am so excited to have them on the podcast for the first time to talk about their new book, which is loved by the community. It's called Culturally Responsive Teaching for Multilingual Learners. So I think the pandemic has made uh, your book perfect for the timing that we're experiencing because it's all about equity. So uh, Dr. Sarah Fenner, Dr. Snyder, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. We're so, we're so happy to be here. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, such an honor. Um, we're just so thrilled. You know, you've done so much for our field and to have us here, we're, we're really, we're excited to be here virtually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm honored to stand on shoulders of giants like you. And I know that you also uh, co-wrote, uh, authored a book called Breaking Down the Walls, which is really great for leaders in school districts to understand, okay, these are things we should do and these are things we should not do. So we stand on your shoulders. But can I start with asking each of you to share um, what a, a story that has really informed your practice? Sure, oh, I'll go ahead and yeah, go ahead, start. <laughs> So I I love that you ask about stories because I think when we're in our book, we talk a lot about the role that stories can play, um, whether it's through building relationships with multilingual learners, um, sharing our own stories with them, using stories as a tool for understanding content or sharing success stories. Um, So I think storytelling is a great such a great strategy um, when we're talking about culturally responsive teaching. And I was trying to think like, what is a story that really highlights um, key aspects of, of of culturally responsive teaching? And it's hard because there's so many different facets of it that I think about 
my, my personal experiences um, of traveling and working abroad and also um, my professional experiences, my work with students and families. Um, and I feel like there's a, so many different stories that could, that could highlight different aspects. Um, but I, I think I wanna tell a story about um, something that happened when I was younger. Um, when I was 10, my family moved to Germany. My father got a job teaching at a Department of Defense school there. Um, and I was in that school. And then towards the spring, my parents decided that I should go into the community German school in our neighborhood. Um, and my memory of that time is really of a lot of confusion and not knowing what was going on. I remember like following classmates, not knowing where we're going and realized I had followed all the boys and I didn't know where the girls were. I remember like here understanding, okay, we're going on a field trip, but I don't know where we're going. Um, but then um, the mom of a classmate, her name was Frau Kopenhofer. She offered to tutor me. And so I would go over to her house after school and she would fill me in on important things from the class. And she taught me German, she taught me German grammar. And she, we talked a lot um, about my experiences um, and we, she used that as a foundation to practice language. And so really I think about that experience and that time with Frau Kopenhofer as foundational in, in my professional career. Like I often think about it um, so that's the story I want to tell. Right. And I'm thinking about the story and I think your, your, the friend, the mother of your friend is, there's a parallel between language specialists, right? Cause sometimes kids all just need that one person in school to say, Hey, I got you. I know it's hard, but I believe in you. Let me just give you a little more time. So I think you're really speaking mm -hmm. to, uh, the heart of the profession. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Stefaner. Great, and please call me Diane, thank you. Um, yeah, there are also so many stories and I guess I didn't really prepare and think of any, but as, as Sydney was talking, you know, about her experience as a student, I'll think, you know, I'll kind of share a, a different, similar perspective, but you know, one and um, finding my way as a teacher and kind of how I got into the profession in, in general. Um, so I, uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in central New York um, and my parents uh, didn't go to college. So I was, my brother and I were first generation college students, college graduates, um, and, you know, didn't really know what opportunities were out there. So um, I, I really wanted to challenge myself, but I, I didn't have, you know, any real guidance at home to kind of help me shape a path. Our guidance counselor at school really um, didn't think about larger opportunities. So I, I wound up, you know, which is a great place in our local, not local, about an hour away in a state university school. But I knew I wanted to challenge myself. I just didn't know how. Um, so I became a double major in physics and German. Um, so I, I completed both of these paths, but I, I didn't really realize kind of what I, I at the time, I didn't have the perspective to know really kind of like what I liked more. Um, and I was being told along the way, like go into science because that's where, you know, that's where you can really find a career. You can really make money, you know, you'll to be a woman in the sciences, right? I was the only woman, a young woman in my physics classes. Like that was it, it was me. Um, but uh, I really enjoyed the language part of it. 
being a, you know, this is what I have in connection with Sydney, right? She was living in Germany as a kid and I was studying German. Um, part of my heritage is, is German. Uh, my dad is the son of German and Ukrainian immigrants. Um, so uh, one day I, I was, you know, kind of trying to figure out my path I was studying for the physics uh, GRE because I thought I needed to go on to science. Everybody was kind of pushing me, me in that direction, um, that, but I just couldn't force myself to do it. And I didn't know why. Uh, that same day, my German professor was having a cross-country skiing party for the German students. And it was this beautiful day. I went to a very snowy area where we would get, you know, like hundreds of inches of snow a year. And it was a, a beautiful morning, skies were blue. I decided, I'm not going to take the physics GRE. I'm going to go with my heart. I'm going to go with language. And I went to the cross-country skiing party and I decided to go into language, into German. Um, I thought I was going to be a German professor, but then I got a Fulbright to teach English um, in the former East Berlin. This is back in the day, right? Back in the early 90s, it had just, the wall had come down. I was the first, uh, one of the first Fulbrighters in the former East part of Germany. And that's where I decided that I would be an, an EFL or ESL teacher and really fell in love then with teaching my own language and, you know, my own multifaceted culture. So that's that's kind of a, a story about, you know, that informed my practice of having this professor who advocated for me and kind of helped me form a path my own work, you know, someone that had that perspective of coming also being, you know, from an immigrant background and helping me navigate the world of college or grad school of Fulbright, all of these things that brought me to where I am today um, and building upon the strong foundation of my own parents who, you know, didn't have the benefit of higher education, but had such great work ethic and hard work and love of family and literacy. So, that's a, a long and drawn out story. <laughs> well, when I listen to both of your stories, thank you for sharing. Uh, sure. There is a red thread that goes throughout. And that red thread is that someone in the school believed right? or someone in the community believed. And then I think that's, uh, that's where the equity part is. And I think that's what we're doing now with students of multilinguals. You are both prolific Oh, by the way, um, Diane, I'm so happy that you didn't go into the science. Well, <laughs> you, this is still science, but we're so happy that both of you chose to uh, give your gift away through multilinguals. You are both prolific writers of books. And so every single book always has a seed. What was the seed for this book? Right, we can... And that's a great way to phrase it, the seed. I love it. I love the imagery and the plants in your background, right? This is the thread that runs through your work. <laughs> so um, yeah, so for this book in particular, you know, you mentioned earlier that we had written Unlocking English Learners Potential. And we, you know, we've worked with lots of school districts and teachers and helping bring that book to life. But something we started noticing was when we would meet with teachers, even some uh, ESL teachers, we would, um, we'd hear some deficit language sometimes, inadvertently. People, you know, you don't really notice it, right, if you're using it, and when referring to multilingual learners. So, you know, we kind of picked up on this, and we knew we wanted to write another book. Like, every time you write one, it's kind of like childbirth, right? You, you forget everything you went through, and you're like, okay, I'm ready to do it again. <laughs> Here we go again. 
<laughs> because it's such a great experience. Um, and so we're like, you know, we're ready to write something, but what, what is it? What are we hearing out in the field? What, what's the need? Um, you know, what are the strengths and what are the needs? And like, how do we address this, this deficit kind of language that we're hearing that, you know, just kind of on tangentially, we would hear little snippets. And we thought, well, gosh, you know, what, what better way to address it than really focusing on culturally responsive teaching? It was one chapter in our unlocking book um, that I, I do have to give Sydney the shout out. She spearheaded that chapter in the unlocking book. And there was just so much to unpack and so much content to really delve deeper into. So that's that's kind of how the, the book got started. You know, we were talking with our editor, um, Dan Alpert at Corwin and just brainstorming different ideas. And when we would collaborate and, and brainstorm, this is really what stuck. And he also is a great supporter of ours. And he, you know, he's just kind of clairvoyant and sees the needs of, of what's happening in the field as well and kind of where we're going as a field. So he, you know, is a big supporter of this chapter, of, of us, you know, breaking out this chapter further. Uh, Sydney, uh, D Diane talked about deficit language. Can you give examples of the things you've heard? So some of the things that you might hear is like, oh, the students don't seem very motivated, or I don't think their families really care about their education, or um, they don't seem very hard, you know, trying very hard to fit in. So these are some of the things, and I think um, it's not that the teachers aren't well-intentioned or they don't want to support those students. It's just they're not looking for what else might be going on, and they're not looking for those assets that the students and their families are bringing. Yeah, and we, we even hear, you know, statements sometimes, oh, he doesn't speak English. Like, oh yeah, he does, yeah, he does. You know, our terminology, right, in our field is still, we're in all different places from, you know, English learner to multilingual learner to emergent bilingual. You know, there's so many different terms too. Um, and just hearing, you know, what, what students lack sometimes. Um, and even, you know, I catch myself doing it. We, we talk about needs and I, I always try to catch myself and say strengths and needs, like always recognize both sides. It, it's so important. Yes. I think I remember like there's the before Weedotan and then there's the after Weedotan. I remember mm -hmm. coming to a conference and someone said, listen, just focus on what students can do. And I was like, and I started to reflect on my own language. And I kept, when I went to co-planning meetings, when I co-taught, I always, I always would say, you can't make kids do this because kids can't do that. You can't expect this of their families. And I, I even once told a principal, I walked down to the principal's office and I said, we cannot admit this student in seventh grade. She has no English and I would say zero language, right? And I can't believe that she said that, but she's, she was so fluent in Chinese, but I said she has zero language and, she, and we're taking away her money from her family, how do we know she's gonna graduate at an IB level in grade 12? And the principal wisely said, we are not in the business of telling the future. We're in the business of teaching the kid in front of us. Mm -hmm. right? And so now I've changed everything from can't do to can do. And I think your subtitle of your book is about equity. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I, for me, I think like that equity piece is really key to culturally responsive teaching. Um, so we talk about the importance of 
building on the foundations that students have, building on their, their backgrounds, their cultural and linguistic backgrounds, their experiences, all these things. Um, and, and that is brings in that equity piece, right? Because we're building on what they already know, what they already can do, as you said. Um, but the other piece of equity that I think is really important is to do some close examination of what students aren't succeeding or what students don't have access to, whether it's college, you know, college course prep classes or AP classes or um, gifted and talented programs. So all these things, do our multilingual learners have equal access? And if they don't, why not, right? What's going on with the system that is um, not granting them that access? Yeah, and it's important, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, um, keeping up here with what Cindy's sharing with equity to look at your own data to see what's what are the numbers, you know, look at within your own schools and districts. Um, if you're if you want to have these conversations around equity, how many what percentage of your multilingual learners are in these programs, you know, who is taking advanced placement courses as a percentage look at their level of English proficiency to make sure we have representation, like an, you know, a representative number and percentage of multilingual learners in, in your courses, in your higher level courses, what percentage are graduating. And also looking at, we also talk about looking at data of students who are maybe former English learners who have graduated, who have placed out of services, see how they're doing over time. And many, many times you'll find that former English learners outperform native English speakers. And that's, that's such a huge key that a lot of people don't realize, especially when some teachers might shy away from having you know, current English learners in a class, um, that it might be more work, they might not see immediate results, but if we provide the services and support, then long-term, we're gonna see such great benefits. And not only are data day nuggets of benefits that maybe just a few teachers see, but they're really sharing so much with a school and with a district. Right, and I think your both your books, uh, the Unlocking English Learning Potential, and then this one, uh, there are so many strategies that you provided both at the community level, the classroom, and then the school leadership part. Sydney, you wanted to say something, and I interrupted you. <laughs> no, I I don't. I was just going to say that's something that we're always trying to do is to make. Thing, our work very practical because we want educators to have these resources, right? And I think when we're talking about culturally responsive teaching, it can feel very abstract and overwhelming. So that's something that we really work hard to do is kind of ground it in practice. Right. What does that actually look like in the classroom? People consistently ask me, hey, what are the books you recommend um, for my, my, my school, my teachers? And I always say one of the top three, I always say unlocking English learners' potential. It's just like the theory is there, but then you give really practical advice. So it's phenomenal. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, we <laughs> really we believe in the practicality um, because we've both been classroom teachers, and we know you know. But we also want to bump it up a level too. We you know been to workshops where it's a lot of strategies, which are great, but we want to we really make sure to ground it in theory and research. So teachers are intentional about the strategies and the tools they use that they can say why they're using it for a certain group or a certain student. And that's, you know, that is where the theory and research comes in. But we also, we wanna make it kind of easily digestible right. and something that teachers can use the next day. Right, I think you, the language that you use is such, it's teacher 
friendly. It's very respectful to practical teachers. And yet it's uh, honoring your PhDs as well. <laughs> Speaking about that, could you talk about, let's just define culturally re relevant teaching. Oh, I guess, uh, could someone say what it is and then someone else say what it's not? Um, so culturally responsive teaching um, seeks to empower and engage students by drawing on their cultural and linguistic backgrounds and prior experiences. Um, and it really fosters the sharing of diverse perspectives that benefit all students. So this idea that all students benefit when diverse perspectives are shared. Um, and it provides opportunities for students to challenge the status quo. So thinking about these structural inequities, giving students opportunities to talk about those and think about uh, what actions they can take um, to be advocates. Um, and then also, as I mentioned before, that, that equity piece about looking, having educators look at representation in classes and coursework um, to make sure that all students are getting equal access and equal opportunities. And then looking to address the inequities that exist. So shall I talk about what it's not? <laughs> Great, and I love how you phrase it. You know, this is, you know, something we do also when we work with teachers, what is it, what's it not, right? When we teach and also, you know, looking to teach K-12 students. So something it's not is culturally responsive teaching is not a prepackaged curriculum. You don't buy something off the shelf and say it's culturally responsive. We wanna honor all the knowledge that teachers bring um, to the table too. So we, we provide teachers, you know, strategies and things to think about and look for for each of our guiding principles that they can use and adapt. But it's not something you just like buy and use. Um, it's not a, also a curriculum. It gives teachers the opportunity to use their expertise to develop their own cur curriculum and use this as a framework for developing curriculum. And it's also not a certain set of strategies. You don't do this today, this tomorrow, this the next day. It, it's, it's you know not stringent really in that way. Um, we give lots of suggestions. Um, just take what you wanna use and use it and see how it goes and maybe add another tool the, the next day or the next week or the next month. Um, so it's really a, a multifaceted way to look at teaching multilingual learners in which, in which all students can benefit too, um, learning about other students' cultures and being respectful of other students as well. One of the biggest mistakes that I used to, so using visible learning uh, the, from the private Project Zero, I used to think, but now I think, right? I used to think that culturally relevant teaching was students' culture. Right. It was only representation, but now I realize that it's not, it's really about the equity piece as well. It's making sure that kids learn, uh, receive equitable, rigorous education, just like everyone else. And I love how you talked about, it's not a program, it's a framework. So really it's not an add on, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a lens in which we look at our instruction. So keep the curriculum you have, keep the standards you have. Now we're just looking at the standards and the curriculum through different eyes, the culturally uh, relevant eyes, culturally responsive eyes. You've also um, nodded in your book to Dr. Django Paris. So he talked about culturally sustaining pedagogy. And I was like, yay, so that was great. Um, part of your framework, you have five, I think they were the, the best part about your first chapter and I just loved, 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 uh, 
were your five principles for equity of culturally responsive teaching? Would uh, some of would how do you want to divide the five? Between we, we've two? got a plan. Okay. Plan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. So whoever wants to talk about the first one. Yeah, I'll I'll talk about. So we're going to talk about all five and the way. Yes. Um, you know, we kind of decided on this is I'll talk about the first one and the last one, I'll bookend, and then Sydney will really dig into the meat of the second, third, and fourth. It's like co-teaching, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we do. Sydney and I have been working together for over 10 years now. So when we read the book, the, the great thing is like, sometimes I'm like, wait, who wrote that? Did she write it? Did I write it? Like, it's really, we definitely have a unified voice after so long working together. Do you ever finish each other's sentences when you're co-presenting at the same time? Oh, yeah. It's been a while that we've co-presented live. But uh, yeah, we do. We do. It's great. <laughs> Okay, I'll let you start with the first principle, which is... Sure. So the first principle is that culturally responsive teaching is assets-based. So, you know, like I shared, really is focusing on students' assets, um, knowing, you know, knowing who they are and being able to espouse their strengths. And, um, you know, in our book, we have lots of scenarios to kind of have people share a common experience um, reacting to, to things. Um, so, you know, we know, we, we talk in our first chapter about a student um, being given a name, right? Being given kind of an American sounding name and reflecting on, you know, how, how does this show a, a deficit, right? Um, giving kids their own name, we should, you know, really honor where they're coming from and how they feel and how they represent themselves. Um, so we want to see where the students come from as, you know, uh, that an assets that their language, their home language is a gift to be recognized and to be shared, right? And not a hindrance that we need to, to overcome. Um, so this is also, I think, you know, our field is evolving in the terms we're using. Um, you know, we, we chose to use the term multilingual learner, not just English learner, to really, um, to share a larger group and to really focus on a larger group and more inclusive group of students. Um, so that, that itself, the term, you know, really espouses the assets-based approach. So um, yeah, so that's, that's, you know, in a nutshell, our first chapter, um, our first, I'm sorry, our first guiding principle. Um, and just a note that Sydney mentioned earlier that it's, sometimes it's hard for teachers to really know what is uh, culturally responsive teaching and what does it look like in practice? So we were very fortunate to be able to film in a school district in Syracuse City School District in central New York, um, what this looks like. And so we, we have for each chapter, one to two video clips that we share about what this principle looks like in practice. So, um, you know, we, we share what this looks like even for operating from a strengths-based perspective okay. uh, and an assets-based perspective. I just love that you started with assets-based, which is the first principle, because I think if teachers have this first principle, it is the doorway to all the other principles. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and in this principle, we, we talk about the concept of being um, a warm and informed demander. So Zaretta Hammond talks about, and we really, we um, bring in a lot of her work too. Uh, we really drew, drew from it a lot and cite her work pretty frequently. And she has the term that came from another researcher whose name escapes me at the moment, so you might remember um, the term to be a warm demander. Um, but we take, oh yeah. 
Judith Kleinfeld. Kleinfeld, yes. Um, but we take it a step further to be a warm and informed demander. So we really need to know where our students are, you know, everything so much about their experiences to really know where we can, you know, challenge them a little bit more, where we can push them a little more um, to have the sense of being informed about the multifaceted lives and experiences they come with to be able to, to do this in a culturally sensitive way. Right. I, you, you know, uh, you provide me with a lot of teacher therapy, both of you, when I read the word warm demander and I was like, <gasps> yes. And so when I, when I talk to kids, uh, when I expect things of them or when I uh, am stern with them, I'm always like, you're being a demander, how can you add the warmth to it, right? Because school can be really traumatizing for kids, right? Especially kids who or can't communicate yet. Yeah. So thank you for, for teacher therapy. <laughs> so principle number two. Right, um, so principle two, three, and four are really the kind of instruction-based principles. Um, and two is that um, culturally responsive teaching simultaneously supports and challenges students. Um, and again, this goes back to access. How are we helping and supporting students access rigorous content? So in our field, we talk a lot about scaffolding instruction, right? So what are the scaffolds that we're using, um, whether it's through instructional materials, such as graphic organizers, through our instruction of modeling very well, whether it's through using peer support, student grouping. Um, these are all scaffolds that are gonna help students of various um, proficiency levels access rigorous content, because that's we wanna provide them access to that and we want them to be able to effectively engage with it. Um, and then the other piece of this chapter, which I think is often um, the piece that we tend to talk about less is that challenge piece. So what can we do in our classes to challenge students to think critically, to make cross-curricular connections? So project-based learning, um, interdisciplinary units, units framed around social justice. Um, I think these are all avenues to explore in terms of how we push our students further. And they're engaging too. So students are able to practice language. They're able to practice content, learn content, but they're doing it um, in a very creative and interactive way by engaging with their peers. You really um, channeled Dr. Pauline Gibbons when you, when you talked about challenge because oftentimes multilinguals experience less rigorous learning experiences because they're pulled out of content classes, they're shoved away under stairwells and closets, right? We know the classes are never okay. Right. And they get a watered down experience. And so you're saying we have to have them back into the class. And teachers, when this happens, teachers say, well, how do I teach them? Mm -hmm. Right. And then Pauline Gibbons said, high challenge, high support. And that's what you're really talking about. You're saying, yes, they can learn. Just like the SIAP model where Dr. Genovedia has revolutionized the field and saying content and language can be taught at the same time. And so you're saying, yes, make it challenging make it equitable and make sure you support the kids. Right, yeah, I think that's so true. Like I think about when I was getting my master's and we were talking about providing background knowledge and really we would provide so much background knowledge that students didn't need to read the text in the end, right? Cause we had given it all to them. So now I think we're really taking a step back and saying, no, you, you need to engage with that text. 
but let me give you the support to do it. Right. Being a warm demander. That's right. <laughs> right. You can do it. You can do this. Let me show you how. Yeah. And a pr principle number three is place, uh, places students at the center of learning. Yeah. And I, I love this one because I think really that's what we want. We want students to be driving the content, the, the, the discussions. Um, we want to make sure that they um, are talking to one another and not to us. I mean, how many classrooms have we been in where the teacher asks a question, a student responds, it goes back to the teacher, you know, and sometimes even when I'm doing professional development, I find that that's the pattern. And I'm like, how can I mix this up? We want you know, students talking to each other, um, because really it's going to be more engaging and they're going to have more language practice and they're going to have more opportunity to learn the content. So thinking about peer-to-peer -peer learning activities. Um, and then also what we talk about in this chapter, which I think is, is even challenging for more experienced teachers, this idea of bringing in students to self-assess because it's not easy, right? Self-assessment is not easy for any of us. So how do we teach students? How do we show models of work and let students talk about that work and what do they notice? And then use that for their own learning to become more autonomous learners. I mean, I think that goes back to the warm demander too, like set goals for your own learning and let's see how you can measure your progress and reflect on your progress and growth. Right. So I think this principle is really important because sometimes teachers can think that uh, because of their language proficiency, uh, multilinguals are not able to enjoy the same kind of learning experience that others do. They might say, oh, you know what? You're not ready for project-based learning or problem-based learning, or you're not ready for inquiry-based learning. And what you're really saying is, no, wait, those things that work for kids that really engage kids to think critically and develop their language and also to understand content are the same things that multilinguals need and they can engage in with. So that's a reminder. So thank you for that. Can you talk about uh, the principle number four, leveraging students' linguistic and cultural backgrounds? Right, and I think this is really um, often what people think of most when they think of culturally responsive teaching is how are we tapping into students' prior knowledge, how we're building on their background, which these are really important ideas. Um, and then also how are we integrating multicultural resources? So in the field, we talk about having uh, materials that are both mirrors where students see themselves reflected in the curriculum and windows where they learn about different ways of being, different ways of doing things, right? Um, and so I think having teachers think and reflect thoughtfully on their curriculum and the extent to which they are offering mirrors and windows to all their students. So making sure that it's not um, mirrors for a lot of students and, you know, mostly windows for a few, right? So <laughs> thinking about our classroom libraries and um, just curriculum materials in general is really important. So, you know, sometimes we'll be like, oh, well, I read this story for Ramadan. Okay, that's great, but it's not, it's not enough, right? How can we integrate um, materials into all aspects of our curriculum and teaching. So students do feel like they see themselves in the curriculum and they feel there's opportunities to share parts of themselves. They have a voice right. in the content. Right. You're talking about Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's work of mirrors, windows, and doors. And I think this is the way we have kids uh, see themselves. And when they see themselves, it feels more relevant. I
I think Dr. Dejango Paris's work really reflects what you are saying. And that the, when we have a single narrative, when it's only seen once, the danger is that there can be internalized oppression. For example, as a gay man, the fact that I didn't see uh, examples of when they talked about examples in schools, they always said mom and dad, or they always talked about when people are in love, they say boyfriend and girlfriends. And so I, there was an internalized oppression where I thought, okay, because I'm not represented, because I don't see two men together or two women together, I see that as not normative. And because it's not normative, I don't want to stand out or be criticized or ridiculed. So therefore, I internalize that being gay is not okay. So that's the narrative. That's the danger of having a single narrative. There's inadvertent internalized oppression. Right. And I think that's, that's a really important piece is we want to have stories that are just stories, just like we have stories that are more representative of all of our students, right? Doing everyday things that, that students can identify with. It's really important. Right. Uh, Dan, I saw that you shook your head. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, just, you know, thinking the, the power of that one representation and what that must have felt like for you. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, in, incredible. Um, as I shared before we went on the air today, um, on the air, um, we, my family and I moved back to my hometown for this year during COVID. Um, and it's been, we're coming from a very diverse school district outside of DC, um, where probably it's about 40% multilingual learners in the district or higher, a lot, very, a lot higher in some schools to a much more kind of homogenous uh, society here. And I've, you know, noticed in just conversations here that, yeah, that, that representation is lacking. Right. And you, you see a lot of, you know, just that deficit thinking in, in talking with people. My kids have noticed it a lot in interacting with students and teachers sometimes too, who just haven't had the benefit of living in a diverse society. You get that one representation and that's what you go with. That's what you think the whole, you know, this society, this culture, this, you know, person I'm interacting with, that's them. So I, it's so important, you know, like Sydney said, and like you've been saying, Tan, to make sure we have this ongoing representation, these stories all the time. To it, Kids are shaped so early on by what they hear, by what they see, and also by what they don't hear and they don't see. Right. I think also when teachers start to try to represent they hit a little issue called the iceberg, culture iceberg. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah, we, we do. Um, we start our book talking about the, the iceberg analogy, right? Where you have different layers of culture and different levels. So the surface culture is kind of more of the, you know, the food and fiestas, right? So, um, you know, what do people wear? Oh, this is a great costume that people might think of. And, you know, these layers, that surface layer is kind of what people expect and people don't, there's not so much emotion tied to it. But then if you dig down a little bit deeper, it's more of the hidden layers of, of culture that have more of a, a deeper impact, like um, your conceptualization of time, for example, um, might be more of that, that middle layer of culture. 
And then digging down a little further, if societies are more individualist versus collectivist, you know, where, where people fall on that continuum and where they tend to fall that people often don't expect. And that can have a kind of a higher charged emotional response where something takes you, catches you off guard and you might not have the words for it, but it, it might be that that deeper level of, of culture in our iceberg that, that we don't expect right. and don't I, often have a, a name for. Um, and we saw a lot of this play out during the pandemic. The, and we write about that a little bit in the, in the book too, the individualist versus collectivist cultures where um, you know people, it, it was their, their freedom to wear a mask or, or not to wear a mask that um, you know, in more a collectivist society, people were more ready to adopt this and to work for the greater good. Um, so that just seeing it play out was very um, eye-opening. Right. I appreciate when you talked about the iceberg analogy because I felt like that iceberg analogy was consistent throughout or the red thread throughout your book because every single chapter you made, you invited teachers to pause and reflect on their own privilege you invited them to pause and reflect on their own language that they're using, their perspective. I still remember on Twitter, there are so many people that did the learning profile one, the profile of the face. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that, Sydney? I see you like shaking your head. Yeah, so that, um, I think that profile activity actually um, was based on an activity that Paul Gorski does, but also on an activity I was facilitating um, a professional development session in Cherry Hill, uh, New Jersey. And um, a teacher talked about how at their school, they had done the profile activity where all, everybody in the school listed things that they identify with as for themselves. And they didn't show the names at first. So first the teachers did it, um, and then the students did it, and then they uncovered the names. And this teacher talked about what it was like to see other students in the school who identified in a similar way that she did. So again, looking for how you can make connections. Um, maybe it's not a student in her class, but um, within the building, right? So building this sense of community and the fact that we have these different pieces of ourselves and it impacts our interactions, it impacts how we teach, um, it in, in our, impacts our relationships with others. Um, I think that that's, that's a really critical piece. And I know, you know, Diane and I, we're still, we're still learning and growing and uh, through these sessions that we do, we hear another way of thinking about something that we've presented, um, another aspect that we need to look at. Uh, so I think that that's important for all educators and the work that we're doing. Right. Thank you for that. And it, yeah. And it's important for us to feel a little uncomfortable with all of this too. Um, that's, that's a big part of our book. We want to try and you know, be warm and informed demanders ourselves, you know, when we're working with teachers and in our own, like Sydney mentioned, our own selves too, to be okay with feeling uncomfortable with some of these discussions and some of this content, because it, it's important. Um, our kids feel, our students feel uncomfortable lots of times. So we can take it upon ourselves to try and experience some of that as well, to grow, because it's when we're uncomfortable that we learn and that we grow. Yes, I think that's the, I, I remember that in the book where you talked about when we're uncomfortable, we actually grow. Right? Yeah. So thank you for talking about that. The last principle is unite students, schools, families, and communities. 
Yeah, so I'll speak a little bit about that. Um, you know, how many of us have been teachers in a school where there's an international night, right? So we had one when I was first uh, an ESL teacher, we would have this international night. And that was like the one time that all of our multilingual families would come to the school. And other times it was, you know, a lot more challenging to get them there. So we want to make sure these are great events. We're not saying don't do them, but can we go deeper? Can we unpack this more? And how can we build that more of a two-way engagement with families where we're reaching out with them? And also, so uniting not only the schools and families, but also the communities and bringing this community piece in is, is really critical as well and sometimes gets left out. Um, so we want to move beyond the food and fiestas, right, into a real partnership a uh, real collaboration across these three areas. Um, and to do that, we wanna look at what are some of our barriers to um, multilingual family engagement, but also being creative and you know, offering up solutions. So for example, if families we think are not coming in to some of our events, well, how comfortable do they feel? Have we asked them? Have we talked to them? Have we personally invited them in and not just sent home a flyer, right? Um, are we providing childcare? Uh, are we helping out with transportation? Are we going to them instead of expecting them always to, to come to us, for example? And so we, we give some strategies, of course, we like that, and tools. Um, and one of the things that we talk about in um, under this guiding principle is having a community walk. So we found out about community walks um, through an a high school in Oakland, California, the Oakland International High School and spoke with the organizer there who shared her materials with us. Um, Lauren Markham is her name. And she shared that community walks are a great way for teachers to get to know the communities and where the students are coming from. Of course, learning about the strengths, right? So, and it's also student organized and student led. So students set the agenda, they share, you know, what they, they really wanna highlight, all the great things about their communities. And they work with the teachers and they provide the professional development and the teachers get to have a guided tour of the communities, which is you know, just can be so powerful and it makes you know, such an impact on the teachers. Um, and talking with some teachers in uh, New York City recently, they shared that a lot of times the teachers don't often, sometimes teachers don't live in their students' communities. So they might know the parking lot of the school and then go back to where they live at the end of the day. So it's really crucial for teachers to get to know um, their students' communities. Right. It's almost like a full circle. Actually, your graphic is a full circle because when you first started, you talked about uh, equity is asset-based or culturally responsive teaching is asset-based. And we're thinking about what kids can do. And then we end with the community and we say, what can the community do? And I think when we start interacting with community, uh, first at the Flagland Festival, but then going beyond, we actually start changing the narrative around how we see parents and how we see that they can contribute, right? And so the first step is yes, fam uh, international night where families feel welcomed, but it's not just that one month. It's not just like right. Pride Month, like yes. here two weeks in one two weeks in school in July, and that's it. And then we're not Pride, we're that proud the whole month, the whole year mm -hmm. round, right? It's like our Latin American month. Or African American month is just one month, but right. how do we do this systematically? So you're really talking about a system. So I, I mean, this chapter itself. If teachers get nothing, just read the first chapters. I think I always want to put a book of like new principles to who are working in multilinguals with multilinguals. Read this first chapter, 
that is enough. (laughs) So um, my second to last question is this, how, well, where do you recommend teachers start with this? I just, I guess one small step. Yeah. So for teachers, I mean, there are so many things that teachers can do, but I, I really, you know, one thing I would recommend is uh, kind of that, that application, that activity, right? Looking at your multifaceted self, really examining who you are first and you know, reflecting on who you are. Why are you an educator? How do you, you know, what groups do you identify with and what impact does that have on your teaching? So I think knowing who you are first is just a great way to approach the work. That's a good first step. Thank you. I, I agree with that. Um, and then I also think what is an area or a strategy that you want to try related to the teaching practices? So for example, do you want to build in more peer learning activities? Do you want to take a closer look at your curriculum? I mean, I again, I think it can be overwhelming to feel like, oh, I have to do all these things at once, but just start with one piece, one thing that you can do, and maybe do a little bit more reading, see how others are doing, um, and then try it out and see how it goes. Right, first step. Right. right. Well, I always end my podcast with this, it's called Traffic Light Teaching. Uh, so red light is something that you ask teachers to stop doing. Yellow light is something that you ask teachers to start doing. Just like when we reach our yellow light, we start to slow down. And then green light is something you ask teachers to keep doing as much as possible. I'll let you go. Oh, great. Oh, boy. <laughs> go ahead. I'll go ahead with the red. I think um, stop blaming students and families, Thank I you. guess. So again, speaking to that asset base, when you, when you hear yourself saying something that's from a deficit perspective, try and catch yourself and think about what else could be going on and how you might reframe it. That would be my, my red. Great. And I'll build on that. I hope what you can start doing when you're hearing this deficit language is start confronting it. Yes. So when you hear the deficit thinking or the blaming students and families, you know, it, leverage your leadership skills, be thoughtful, keep your relationships going. Don't steamroll over people. But, you know, if you hear something, (laughs) say something um, in a way that might make people think, but also offer to help a little. If you hear someone's having a tough time with their multilingual learners, well, share, well, here's a tool I've used, you know, maybe I can model it in your classroom or share it with you. I think someone said, I think John Adams said, uh, people are not afraid of change. They're just afraid of not being supported mm. during the change, mm. right? And so what you're saying is, okay, I hear deficit speak. Let me, let me share what I do so that you can also start changing your view. So that's really a gentle affirming approach because we can slam doors with relationships by saying no, right? Exactly. And then a green light. For the green, I, I wanna touch on just this year. We saw such creativity Teachers showed such creativity this year in engaging with families and engaging students in a variety, you know, whether it was virtual, whether it was hybrid, whether it was in class. Um, And they they did a lot to really scaffold instruction, used a lot of tech tools to help our multilingual learners. And so my green light is full steam ahead with that. Like take those strategies that you saw that were working, that were engaging and you know, double down on them, use them, explore them more, share them with one another. 
So when next time teachers say, hey, what books do you recommend when I share with teachers? Now I'm going to have to keep on sharing both unlocking English learners' potential, but also culturally responsive teaching. So you have, I always start my podcast or my blog or my webinar with a silent prayer. It's always, may this serve kids I will never meet. And you both are serving kids you will never meet because you are helping teachers see kids in a different way. So Dr. Sarah Fenner, Dr. Sydney Snyder, thank you again for your scholarship, for being warm, helping us be warmed and informed demanders. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much for having us. What a pleasure. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. We have waited for a book like this for years. This book builds on Gay's, Billings and Hammond's work and speaks directly to teachers of multilinguals. Dr. Snyder and Dr. Sterfenner's work does exactly this. I appreciate how Dr. Snyder and Dr. Sterfenner said that their book offers a framework, not a program. The framework helps us to design instruction in a way that is more culturally responsive for MLs. The five principles again are assets-based, simultaneously supports and challenges, places students at the center of learning, leveraging students' linguistic and cultural backgrounds, and finally, unite students' schools, families, and communities together. When we plan with these in mind, we avoid the flags and festivals trap. Flags and festivals are a wonderful start, but they shouldn't be the stopping point. Sydney and Diane show us how to go beyond the flags and festivals. I hope this episode and their book adds to your practice of creating culturally responsive instruction for MLs. In the next episode, we continue with the culturally responsive instruction theme and we interview Dr. Maria Joy Pena about her book called Mothering Labeled Children. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Shine.